Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Kelsey Bowler, your host for today's show, and we have a lot to get to. First, we're going to discuss the synagogue shooting in California and the complicated questions surrounding the Second Amendment and mental health. We're also going to look at a fascinating column in the New York Times asking, where are the socially conservative women in this fight? Sports Illustrated decided to feature the first Muslim woman wearing a hijab in burkini. We'll share our thoughts. And of course, as always, we'll crown our problematic woman of the week. To break this all down, I have here with me in studio today, my colleagues at the Heritage Foundation, Amy Swearer, a senior legal policy analyst in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Amy, thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. And I also have Lauren Evans with the Heritage Foundation and the Daily Signal. Lauren, great to have you back. Thanks, Kelsey. Before we get started, we want to ask if you are a problematic woman or if you support strong, right-minded women, please consider supporting the show by leaving a review or five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. It really does help. As you probably know by now, a gunman attacked a Southern California synagogue on Saturday, the last day of Passover, killing one worshiper and wounding three others. The online manifesto that was found from the alleged shooter was an anti-Jewish screed that praised the suspects accused of carrying out the attacks on Moss in New Zealand that killed 50 people last month and also at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue that resulted in 11 deaths on October 27th. The shooter's gun reportedly jammed and an off-duty Border Patrol agent charged and fired at him as he fled, missing him but striking the getaway vehicle. An Army combat veteran also rushed the suspect just before the Border Patrol agent opened fire. Here's a clip from the rabbi talking about the victim, Lori Gilbert Kay. Lori laying on the floor unconscious. And her dear husband, Dr. Howard Kay, who's like a brother to me, is trying to resuscitate her. And he faints. And he's laying there on the floor next to his wife. And then the daughter Hannah comes out screaming, Daddy and Mommy, what's going This is the most heart-wrenching sight I could have seen. We have Amy Swearer in studio today because she is, I would say, one of the nation's most knowledgeable scholars on mass shootings, uh, the Second Amendment, and also most recently mental illness and how that becomes a factor in many of the shootings that sadly have taken place over the past uh, decade or more. So we will dive into the broader issue of mass shootings. But first, uh, Amy, I wanted to get your thoughts um, on specifically how the shooting was stopped. It appears that in part it was stopped by a good guy with a gun. This is something the left often mocks the right for saying that a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun. But it sounds like that's what happened here. Yeah, so it, it's still pretty unclear exactly what the timeline of events was, whether the shooter's gun jammed, uh, whether uh, he was simply scared off by a courageous individual who who bull rushed him, uh, you know, whether he thought, oh, man, they're, they're fighting back. Um, but what is very, very clear is that there was an armed good guy sitting there on the scene with a gun 
who was prepared and and willing and, and capable of stopping that shooter long before law enforcement would have arrived on the scene. And so it's actually kind of concerning to me that gun control advocates have have pointed to a possible gun jamming incident uh, as disproving the good guy with a gun theory, uh, because if that gun doesn't jam, then if that armed security guard isn't there, this likely turns into a a slaughter on on par with what we saw in New Zealand. Uh, And and in fact, that that is kind of exactly what we saw happen in New Zealand. Um, You know, I, I think at the very least, we have a situation where the individual who who courageously charged the shooter uh, ends up as a martyr instead of simply just you know having having done a heroic action. Um, so it, it, if anything, it, it shows that there was a guy on the scene willing and, and capable of taking action um, minutes before law enforcement would have gotten there. Um, so you know, barring anything else happening, he he was there, and and, and that's something we should be proud of. And having armed security uh, available at places that are at risk for mass shootings is one solution that I know you have explored. Uh, But you've also uh, written about other potential solutions to help stop these mass shootings. What more can be done? Well, so one of the big things that we have to look at with mass public shootings in particular is the relationship uh, that it has to untreated mental illness. Uh, So to be clear, it doesn't appear that the individual who who went into this California synagogue suffered from a mental illness. Um, he, he actually fits the profile of more of an ideological motivated uh, mass public shooter, uh, but that's not really par for the course. So what we generally see, and what a lot of different analyses of these mass public shootings have shown, is that about two thirds, about sixty to sixty six. Um, sometimes as high as 70 percent of mass public shooters are suffering from untreated mental illness at the time of the shooting. Uh, and and that that mental illness actually played a significant, uh, if not primary role in uh, getting them to a point where, where they were taking the lives of other people. I know red flag laws are one potential solution for um, addressing the mental illness component that is so relevant in a lot of these mass shootings, again, not the most recent one that we are talking about today at the California synagogue. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think the issue of mass shootings needs to be looked at comprehensively. And it seems Definitely. like the left constantly wants to focus on one issue. And it's very easy for them to just say, ban guns and these shootings will stop. And they often accuse conservatives of not coming up with co- right. solutions. And I get so frustrated because I look at your work and it is... Um, it is very in-depth. It takes time to read. I, I've made it through quite a bunch, but probably not all of it yet. But you are doing a lot. And uh, I think one of my biggest takeaways is that these situations are complicated and require you looking at all these different components, not just the gun component. It de- Definitely. And, and so it's important to keep in mind that mass public shootings are, are statistically very rare events. They account for a, a minuscule number of the nation's firearm related deaths every year. Uh, But they do play a huge role, as you've kind of alluded to, in in driving public perceptions of gun violence um, and and certainly in in driving gun control advocacy groups. Um, So they're particularly devastating to to communities and and to sort of the national conversation. Um, And so it is important that we make sure that we're we're stepping back and saying, okay, this is a complex issue. How do we address all these different facets? Um, One of which is, is certainly 
mental illness. Um, you know, so so looking at whether it's uh, red flag laws, whether it's uh, taking into account the role that deinstitutionalization um, has played in, in in really facilitating some of the huge problems that we have with untreated mental illness in the United States, those are things that we need to look at long before we start saying things like we just need to disarm Americans broadly across the board. Can you break down for those who haven't heard of red flag laws uh, very briefly what they are and how they can help? Sure. Red flag laws are, are sort of the stopgap measure to temporarily disarm individuals um, who, whose actions suggest that they're reaching a point of mental health crisis. Um, so it allows uh, friends, family members, people who are close to an individual to petition a court to say, look, we're seeing problems with this individual uh, that, that are suggesting they're a danger to themselves or others. Uh, and it allows the court to, to temporarily um, restrict that person's access to firearms. Um, the good red flag laws um, that we would be supportive of are those that there's due process protections, that it's a temporary disarmament, and that a person is being rerouted toward uh, mental health treatment and, and toward things that you know get them on a road back to a place where we can trust them with a firearm again. Um, and so that's what red flag laws are, and they, they can, when they're well-crafted, um, play a vital role in protecting um, communities and, and protecting individuals without uh, disarming just broadly across the board uh, entire communities or, or blaming a particular firearm. Are there any common misperceptions surrounding violence, mental illness, and firearms that you often hear repeated in the media that you would like to debunk? Sure. Well, I think there are two big things here. So first, it's always important to remember that most mentally ill individuals are not and will never become violent. Uh, that being said, there is a very clear link between untreated serious mental illness uh, and particular types of gun violence, so specifically suicide and mass public shootings. Um, but mentally ill people as a group are not these pariahs who are categorically dangerous um, but we are all better off when we invest in making sure that individuals are treated. Um, second, suicide and acts of mass public violence, whether with firearms or, or uh, with, with other means, these are very complex issues. Um, it, it's not this sort of, well, we can just do one thing, snap our fingers, and, and we've solved this problem. Um, firearms and access to firearms play an important role, uh, but they're certainly not the only role. And so we do society and and each other and, and frankly, people who are suffering from mental illness, we do them a huge disservice when we focus solely on the means used, um, in this case, firearms, instead of taking on those underlying problems that lead people uh, to be a danger to themselves or others. Right. And for those listening, where can they actually go to read your work on this subject? So we have a number of fairly lengthy legal memos on heritage.org. Um, but if you're looking for more of uh, a condensed version of that, uh, we have a number of more more condensed uh, articles uh, on the Daily Signal. Well, I do want to get Lauren back in on this conversation. Sorry, you're not the, <laughs> the leading expert, expert on uh, gun mass shootings, gun violence, and mental illness. But Lauren, I know um, you you were uh, touched by this tragedy, as many of us were, and you were able to find a couple stories of uh, the goodness that we often see come out of uh, such horrible situations. Yeah, I think like Amy mentioned, these shootings are statistically rare, but what isn't rare is the goodness in humanity. And 
there's two stories that I wanted to highlight. One, Kelsey already touched on, um, but Lori Gilbert Kay, she was the woman who actually jumped in front of her rabbi taking the bullet for him. And this wasn't just a one-off of what she did. She was kind like this throughout her whole life. Her friends shared stories of her uh, buying bagels for homeless people. She would give people $100 whenever they go on vacation so they could then give that $100 to other people and continue this charity. And then there's also a story of Almag Perez. He was uh, visiting his sister from Israel, and he was wounded by shrapnel from the shooter's gun. And even with his leg bleeding, he ran to save children in the corner of the synagogue and it saved his own niece and pushed them out of an emergency exit, which I can't imagine running with, you know, your leg cut up. But people are good and, and the good will always outweigh the evil. And we, we spoke about these two gentlemen who, with their toxic masculinity, you know, they, they, char- they charge the shooter. Um, and so while there's a lot in this world to get really get disheartened by, I think we just need to remember people are good and and good is always going to beat out evil. And we need to empower these good people to continue doing good things. Absolutely. That's a perfect note to leave you all on. When we come back, we'll have a bit of a lighter topic. We'll be talking about a New York Times column asking, where are these socially conservative women in this fight? Uh, But we appreciate you uh, coming along with us for that discussion. I think it's an important topic that we need to talk about regularly because sadly these mass shootings continue to happen. Don't go far. Looking for a short morning podcast to give you the news of the day without liberal bias? The Daily Signal podcast is a rundown of the top stories you need to know that the mainstream media is probably ignoring. All right, Lauren and Amy, let's get to it. Helen Andrews, managing editor of the Washington Examiner magazine, took to the pages of the New York Times to ask, where are the socially conservative women in this fight? Well, I'll tell you, you have a couple right here, (laughs) but she did raise some very interesting points, very interesting questions. I'm going to break a couple of them down and start by uh, reading uh, one short paragraph Uh, That sort of uh, summarizes, I would say, her argument in this piece. She said, quote, by making it easier for women to pursue success in the workplace, we have made it harder for them to do anything else. Pressing the brake on the trend set in motion by the feminist revolution would leave women more free to follow a diversity of paths. In that case, another Phyllis Schlafly may be just what America needs. So she cites a few examples of why she argues that success for women in the workplace is actually holding some of us back. Uh, One example is the two-income trap, which was ironically first introduced by Senator Elizabeth Warren when she was a professor at Harvard, Uh, the theory being that it has become difficult for a family with one breadwinner to afford a middle-class standard of living. Um, First off, do you agree with that theory Um, And do you think in general, uh, do you agree with Helen's overall argument here? I don't agree. I think this myth of having it all is what's actually been so toxic to women. I think having choices is good for women. As conservatives, we push for choices. But I think the problem is that we're pushing for women to have all these choices. But at the same time, we're also pushing for women to fit in this little box. And women see on TV and they read in these books that they need to have the perfect home. They need to be home all the time with their kids. But they also need to have this really 
great career and, and be climbing the corporate ladder. And, you know, they feel like they're failures if they're not both Martha Stewart and Sheryl Sandberg. <laughs> so, I mean, I agree with the second part that women do want to spend more time with their kids. And this is something kind of burning inside of them. But I don't know necessarily of saying like, oh, they should have never had the choice in the first place is the right answer. Right. No, I and I, I tend to agree with that. I, I don't think the problem is necessarily that the women now have these choices. It, it's more of the societal pressure that uh, that has said, OK, look, we opened up these doors for you and now you have to choose a STEM field and you have to be working 80 hours a week and you have to be a, a paid professional. And how dare you go back uh, to be a, a mother and a wife, even though you in, enjoy that and, and it, it's good for your children and and you don't necessarily maybe want the things that, that we want for you. Um, and I think, too, on top of that, you know, we have this idea of like, oh, women have to have it all. I, when did men have it all? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, like men who, who were traditionally working, you know, the, these long hour shifts, you know, it turned into like, well, where's where's dad? Where's my where's my husband? Where's, you know, where, where they weren't staying home and raising kids either. So this idea that that women have to you know, now figure out how to do both of those things is is absurd because that was never a burden that was put on men. Um, and so keeping those doors open and, and saying, OK, yes, it's, it's there for you, but but we don't have to push you into things you, you don't want to do just because traditionally men have done them. Um, you know, so I, I, I tend to agree with with Lauren on that. And I have a theory that this conversation is very different depending on um, the different types of careers that women have. I would think women at the lower end of the income uh, specter where um, maybe they're just working at a retail shop aren't as passionate uh, than women who have gone to college and really um, had the opportunity to choose a career path that they can find meaning and purpose from. Um, but I did find this section uh, where Helen talks about moms not being happy today really interesting. She wrote, in the top tier, college-educated women feel they can't afford to take time off from their careers to raise their children when they want to, as many of them do. According to an analysis of American Community Survey, Data by the Institute for Family Studies, only 17% of mothers with children three or younger (laughs) say they prefer to work full time. I do think there's got to be some truth to that. I mean, it's a legitimate study, but that number, 17%, really struck me. Um, You know, that means the vast majority of women who have young children are longing to be able to work flexible hours and part-time to stay home with their kids. And I think that's where this conversation needs to go, um, both in the political sphere and in in the workplace, Um, because workplaces have to adapt. Um, It is easier to work from home and be flexible. And women are contributing to the workplace in in so many ways um, beyond any monetary value, I would argue. And if if you know, one side does really value their contributions, you would think that they would want to invest and make this work for both women and families. But of course, it's also about the bottom line. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I um, had an hour long Uber ride this weekend. So I had a lot of time to have discussions with my Uber driver. And he told me that his wife, what she made barely covered their childcare expenses. Yeah. And so she really felt guilty that she wasn't home with her kids. And it almost wasn't worth it financially for them. But at the same time, she didn't feel like she could take off five or 10 years in the middle of her career to 
raise her children because once she gets back, technology will be different. Her her industry could be different. Somebody would probably fill her role automatically. So I think, Kelsey, you're right. When you're talking about these part-time roles and, and empowering women, maybe they do take a 25% pay decrease in order to get 25% more time with their children, that we can find ways that work with women. And, and like we were talking about before, providing them more choices rather than just an A or an a B choice. Right. And, and I think that type of flexibility also tends to be healthier for the, the children and the families that are involved, right? Like, so I, I was always in a very unique situation where my, my mom was a teacher. And so, you know, like outside of school hours, I got to spend a whole lot of time with her. Um, you know, I, I wasn't raised, like there, there's some friends that I have who, you know, from the time they were toddlers on up, uh, it was spending, you know, long hours essentially in, in preschools and daycares and after school stuff. Um, where it's like they they never ate dinner together as a family and they they never you know had that semblance of a family unity um, and so by empowering women to to really have those flexible choices and to be able to spend time with their kids it's actually healthier uh, it, it creates a healthier family it creates a healthier society um, you know so those there are, are studies to back that right, up by the right. way yeah that no they, show, this is yeah children spending too much time especially at young ages in daycare leads to adverse effects, behavioral problems, uh, specifically with boys, it can lead to aggression. Um, and I think those studies are uncomfortable for a lot of us right. because, um, you know, a lot of women do need to work and you don't want to shame them or make them feel bad for that reality. But the truth is babies need their mothers physically and emotionally and developmentally. And I think that always has to be a part of this conversation. Uh, absolutely. And so I, I think more than anything, that's one of the overlooked things you know, when we start talking about the flexibility, it's not just about, you know, the, the woman in, in her career and having that flexibility, but but also how does this benefit families and society? Right. And I think it's interesting that Helen is arguing, and I, I think I would agree to her to an extent that the feminist push to empower women to uh, be CEOs and so forth in the workplace, you know, it's really a question, has that gone too far or how do we strike that balance between still encouraging women to achieve all they want and can in the workplace, but also allowing women to be honest with themselves that, you know, only 17 percent of them still want to be working full time when they have children. Um, a lot of interesting things here. And I have to say, I do have a friend who recently had a baby and has had to deal with the difficulty of going back to work after that. And I think um, especially, you know, maybe in my millennial generation, uh, it's also financially hard because we get used to a certain lifestyle with with dual incomes. And although you could survive on one income, you would completely have to change everything about your life, your way of life. And um, you know, it's a question of are we willing to do that? No more brunch, no more Uber Eats. <laughs> no more avocado toast. <laughs> Be tough. All right. Well, the other point that Helen really brought up is that uh, she argued the conservative movement is lacking an anti-feminist Phyllis Schlafly. Um, do you agree with this? I personally have to say I know a lot of these type of women um, through both the Heritage Foundation, the Federalist and uh, Independent Women's Forum. Uh I'll name a few, Molly Hemingway, Joy Pullman, Inez Stepman, Ali Beth Stuckey, um, Mona Sharon. I, I really could go on. So I feel like this message is out there. I felt like I had read this New York's Time, New York Times column in, you know, different versions on different conservative-leaning websites. But I guess I would agree that there's not just a singular celebrity figure in the form of a Phyllis Schlafly. 
I think that might be a good thing, though. I, I mean, I'd say, like, we're here. We're just not necessarily popular in the mainstream. Um, you know, we don't necessarily get the the media bandwidth of of you know, more radical feminists. Um, but but we are here, and, and I think it's a good thing that you know you, you have a lot of different people kind of under the same big tent, uh, but not necessarily having you know one person where who's, who's going to make or break the movement. Um, you know, so I it's it's kind of a, a trade off there. Um, but no, we we are definitely here, and I I think this is a kind of a 21st century phenomenon. You now there's a thousand TV channels, right? And so back. 50 years ago, there were three, and so one of the three shows were going to be the most popular. But now everybody's on Twitter. Everybody has a platform. And when everybody has a platform, nobody has a platform. So, Kelsey, I think you're 100% right that the women that you listed are, are all amazing women who I look up to. And you can read them, and you, you can listen to our podcast, and you can read The Federalist and, and read The Daily Signal and, and find these women. So, yeah, there might not be one, but I think it's so much better that instead of one, there's thousands. Yeah, it, it, it's almost like the platform underground, you know, where it's it's like once you know it's there, uh, it, it's, you know, all over the place. And there, there's so many different uh, people and sources and, and you know, things that, that you can listen to. Um, but if you don't know it's there, it certainly can feel like, oh, it just doesn't exist. Absolutely. And there's some irony that uh, this column was written in the New York Times because in many ways the New York Times and others like them are the gatekeepers for getting the message out to a broader audience. As you both just said, conservative women, socially conservative women are here. We know so many of them. And it's it's great that they all have their own personal spin on conservative feminism. Some some completely reject the label uh, feminist. We've, we've gone into that a bunch. Um, but it, in order to, I guess, really get out there, we need the New York Times to be more open to our perspective and, and um, allow us space to get our message out there. I think that is one of our biggest challenges, and that is why we're doing what we're doing here today. Um, we're trying to make our voices heard. Uh, so thank you guys. That is, I, I really encourage everybody to go read that article um, in the New York Times. It, it is worth your time. Uh, where are the socially conservative women in this fight? Well, we have an even more lighthearted topic now to get to. <laughs> it involves Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition deciding to feature the first Muslim model in a hijab and burkini. So this is, uh, her name is Halima, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Aiden. She's a Somali-American model who was born in Kenya. She looks beautiful in this spread, and I absolutely would love to see more Muslim women featured in magazines. Um, but when you look at what her religion stands for, um, or in, in some cases demands, in, in the case of what she wears, it demands modesty seemed to me a little hypocritical for her to model in a magazine spread that basically features women who are naked. Thoughts? I think any celebration of modesty is a good thing. You know, you look at Kim Kardashian's Instagram and she's, you know, naked the whole time. So I am happy. But to me, this kind of screams of the the woke Olympics that we talk about so much that I think if this woman was a Christian, like let's say she was Baptist and she wanted to wear the long skirts or if she asked to wear maybe one-piece swimming suit, she would not be put on the cover. We would not be talking about it. She would just be out of contract. This Sports Illustrated is kind of using this controversy to show, like, oh, look, I'm so intersectional. 
So I'm I'm super conflicted. I think it's great that they are allowing her to show her faith, and I, I hope that they continue to allow other models to show their faith. But I just have to be a little cynical about the reason I'm behind it. Yeah, and to me, I'm not just cynical. I'm also a bit confused, uh, you know, because, again, the, the my understanding of, of Islam is that the, the purpose of, of covering up and wearing the hijab is is a symbol of, of modesty. Um, and so it's confusing to me that it, it's like the symbol of modesty, but, like, how far can we push it for Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, which is the opposite of modesty just by default? I never fault anybody for for wanting to to wear the symbols of their faith and 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 dress in a way that is consistent with their religion. Um, it, it's just a confusing outlet for me. Yeah. Um, but but I, but I do agree with her. Yeah. I mean, she she looks amazing. Yes, she's um, beautiful. So, it's, well, talk, talking about Sports Illustrated's motivations and why they did this, and you know, they, they're suddenly acting like sex appeal doesn't matter. Um, if you read the article they wrote at. SI Swimsuit, we strive to continue to spread the message that whether you you are wearing a one-piece, a two-piece, or a burkini, you are the pilot of your own beauty. Uh, the, the managing editor said, we believe beauty knows no boundaries. I admire Halima, and I consider her an inspirational human for what she has decided to use her platform for and her work with UNICEF as an ambassador. She is, in my opinion, one of the great beauties of our time, not only on the outside, but on the inside. Uh, when we met, I was instantaneously taken by, by her intelligence, enthusiasm, and authenticity. So that's all great, but... I find it hard to believe that Sports Illustrated Swimsuit cares about women on the inside. Pictures of basically naked women, uh, you know, why do like why do they suddenly care about what's on the inside of women? If if they cared about that, then the women who are featured in this spread, you know, they wouldn't just be featuring one Muslim woman. I would hope that a whole diverse a handful of women would be featured for all the different reasons they are beautiful on the inside and out. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Kelsey. And kind of what Amy just said is, like, just because she's covered up, like, doesn't make her modest. You know, like, you could be wearing sweatpants and, and one of those robber hoods over your head where only your eyeballs are showing. But if you're, like, posing in the right way, like, you're still coming off in a certain attractive way to men. So I think Sports Illustrated is trying to play both ways. They're trying to yeah. play play to men and try to still stay attracted to men, but but kind of winking and, and nodding at women to be like, oh, no, see, we're, we're super woke. It's cool. Yeah. It's just how, how woke can we be while still yeah. getting male readership? Yeah. Uh, so it's or viewership. I don't I don't know if there's anything to read. in those articles. Subscription. Uh, yeah. Magazine purchases. And I think this is just the first two. I think we're going to see Victoria's Secret adding more and more plus size models. I think we're going to see more and more, um, which are, are good things. Like all of this, we want to see more inclusivity of women. But, but they need to do it for the right reasons. For the right reasons, exactly. And, and I think that, you know, the outlet is just, you know, as we've all said, is is what's problematic here. I would love for fashion magazines to feature more Muslim women, more, yeah. more women who look different. It has been mostly white women ever since I was little growing up. They need to get with the program. Sports Illustrated, on the other hand, I mean, they're just... You know, we know what they're there for. And when they do things like this, it just comes off as inauthentic. We'll leave it there. Um, When we come back, we'll crown our problematic woman of the week. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities and gossip at the Supreme Court. 
This week's problematic woman of the week is the one and only Megan McCain. Yesterday at the Americans United for Life event called Women Speak 2019, McCain, co-host of The View, was presented with the inaugural Defender of Life in Media Award. The president of AUL and CEO Catherine Glenn Foster said Americans United for Life has been continually awed by McCain's courage in the cause for life, from backing efforts to defund Planned Parenthood to supporting the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. We are thrilled to present our inaugural Defender of Life in the Media Award to Ms. McCain. So I'm sure most of our audience is familiar with Megan McCain on The View, but in case you're not, here's an example of her spreading the pro-life message to audiences who probably are um, not too familiar with uh, how extreme, really, the Democrats have gone on this issue. Ben Sass authored the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. This act would punish any doctor who fails to provide medical care to a child born alive after an attempted abortion. Every single Democrat, except three of them, voted for this yesterday, including Cory Booker, Kristen Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders. So that means these Democrats don't believe that a baby born after a botched abortion should receive medical care. Now, this is something that started with Governor Northam. Now, this is an example when we're talking about people having children and where just how extreme the left has gone. This is an example of that. And by the way, according to a Marxist poll, 80% of Americans support abortion being limited to the first three months of pregnancy. So if Democrats want to win an election Mm -hmm. going forward, (coughs) are you going to be the party of late-term abortion, the party of infanticide? Let me finish, please. Are you going, is this the platform you're going to have? Because when you're talking about children and you're talking about being pro-life, this is well out of the mainstream of where Americans are at. And when I hear AOC saying that, I actually think Cory Booker, Kristen Gilligrand, Kamala Harris, all these people, they are, they are answering her. I believe AOC is the leader of the party. And if you think that is how you win back the White House, I'm here to tell you, I spend a lot of time in red states. I'm from a red state. That is a losing argument. I need to push back. Girl, yeah, that is. Uh, if that doesn't make you want to like fist pump in the air, I don't know what does. I was over here yeah. fist pumping yeah. in the air. <laughs> That's what I love about her. She's just so passionate when she speaks about issues she cares about. You can feel it. Yeah, and I mean, she has been a supporter of this podcast, and we love her. But I would never call her some right wing activist. I think she's just kind of this sensible person who is is secure in her conservative beliefs, and that's why when Joy Behar tried to cut in. She was like, no, ma'am, and just continued her point. And and that's why I think the American people love her. And she's such a great messenger for these pro-life ideals because she's genuine and she does care. And she gives you that fist pump moment. And I, I really I empower um, our listeners to make sure that you're following her on social media. We need more Megan McCain's like, please be that person. Be passionate. Be fair. Be loving towards others. But but be strong. When somebody interrupts you, say, no, ma'am, I'm going to finish <laughs> my me. point. Yeah. Megan McCain holds a special place in our heart um, on this podcast. She did know Brie Payton, and um, after losing her father, has really set an example for all of us in how to deal with grief, especially uh, being such a public figure. She has um, supported us so much throughout this difficult time. She supported this podcast. Uh, she supported Bree, and uh, we appreciate everything Megan does for the movement and, and for us personally. She really is an amazing woman. 
That's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. I'd like to thank Lauren Evans and Amy Swearer for joining me today. Can you let people know where to find you both on Twitter? My Twitter is fairly simple. It is just at Amy Swearer, so at first name, last name. Uh, I believe I'm the only one, so come find me. I have to say you've become one of my favorite follows on Twitter, so anyone listening, I highly recommend to go follow Amy. I I come with cat pictures as well. (laughs) (laughs) What else could you want? Uh, My Twitter is at Lauren Eliz Evans. And make sure to join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives really need your support in the podcast space. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. This isn't just a desperate plea. It really does help us out getting spreading this conservative message. Thank you, guys, and have a wonderful week. This podcast was created by The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, edited by Michael Gooden and Thalia Rampersad. Special thanks to The Daily Signal's editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our friend, Bree Payton.